Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. I'm your host, Ariona Spitkanen, a doctoral candidate at the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Turku in Finland. In this episode, we'll be looking back in time all the way to the 18th century to talk about a fascinating but less known historical topic, contacts between Finland and China through the Swedish East India Company's trade voyages. I'm joined by Erja Kettunen-Matilainen, a senior research fellow in economic geography and adjunct professor at the Department of Marketing and International Business at the University of Turku. Dr. Kettunen-Matilainen conducts research on economic relations between Finland and Asia from a variety of perspectives, and one of her research topics has been the participation of Finns in the Swedish East India Company's trade voyages in the 18th century. Perhaps the most notable result of this historical interaction was the first ever Finnish dissertation on China, which was defended by cadet Israel Reinius right here at the Royal Academy of Turku in 1749. Based on this, we can say that the contacts between Finland and China go back at least two and a half centuries, and it's of course fitting that we're discussing these roots right here in Turku today. So without further ado, Dr. Kettunen-Matilainen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. So, as we all know, shipping has always been a key channel of trade between Europe and Asia, and this was obviously the case also in the 18th century. But recently, there have been significant challenges in maritime trade due to the COVID pandemic, and especially with China, which is one of the few countries that still sort of holds on to major COVID restrictions, even as Europe and Western countries in general have largely done away with those. So before we dive into this history of the 18th century, could you tell us a bit about the current situation and the impact of COVID on maritime trade relations between Europe and China? And have there been significant disruptions in our maritime relations with China? And how are European and perhaps Nordic countries in particularly coping with this situation? Yes, there have obviously been big issues here. So actually, right in the beginning of the COVID-19, spring 2020, factories were shut down in China also because of other reasons, but this instantly affected the global production networks because so many companies operate internationally and they import components to Europe from China. So this actually caused the global logistics crisis as well. The whole system went into disruption at that time. And after the factories were reopened in China, The exports from China to Europe and also elsewhere, they recovered, but then the containers were left empty in Europe and elsewhere in the world because there were no exports back from Europe, for example, to China. And so the whole logistics system disrupted at that time and the global value chains have been in a big crisis. Then also with the COVID, there was the need for every country actually to bring production back to home country, also for the purposes of safeguarding, you know, the the situation in every country. So many countries realized that they were so dependent on the imports from Asia, especially. So this caused a problem, especially in the COVID situation at that time. Now, afterwards, the situation has improved a little or quite much also, but also the maritime transportation has not really recovered back to what it was before COVID, also because the prices of cargo 
the container prices went like five times higher than they had been. They had been really low before the COVID. When it comes to Finland and the Nordic countries, then the rail transports were opened and grown between the Nordic countries and China. So some of the exports and imports have been transported through railways with the container trains. Okay. Yeah. Well, it seems like there is sort of, you know, we used to have this maritime silk road and then this land silk road back in the old days. And these were the two main roads of transportation between Europe and China. And seems like now with the disruption of the maritime trade, we have, you know, a sort of new focus on our land road to China and Eurasia. So interesting sort of refocusing of trade and we'll see what the future holds. I guess the situation is still very, very unclear. And with China, we have no idea how long their COVID restrictions will last. But, well, we live in interesting times. But let's turn now to our main historical topic. As I mentioned there in the introduction, you've conducted research on Finns who traveled to Asia with the Swedish East India Company. And perhaps we should clarify here to our listeners outside the Nordic region that during this time in the 18th century, Finland was actually part of Sweden. So it makes sense that Finnish people would sail with the Swedish East India Company. But to start with, could you tell us briefly, how did you first discover this topic and what got you interested in these 18th century contacts between Finland and China? Yeah, I had actually been connected to Gothenburg, the University of Gothenburg in Sweden, since I was a doctoral student in Finland. And then I was also later a visiting researcher in Gothenburg. And as we know, Gothenburg is the hometown of the Swedish East India Company, and the headquarters were there, and actually the headquarter building is still there. It is nowadays a museum, a very, very beautiful building. And so I was aware of this history, and actually then when I was going back and forth in Gothenburg, so in the early 2000s, I went to the shipyard in Gothenburg to see how a replica of one of the ships, Göteborg, was built. And this is a ship that has actually made a journey to China as well. And it has made journeys to other places here in the Nordics and in Europe and so on. And it came to Helsinki in 2008. So I went to see the ship and it's really beautiful. And by the way, it is coming to Finland again. And uh, from here, it is going onwards to other places in Europe, and it will start a two-year expedition actually to Asia. So the end point will be in Shanghai next year for this ship. Okay. Interesting. (laughs) This is, yeah, a nice coincidence here. So after I had seen the replica for the first time in in Gothenburg, I started wondering whether, because it had been the 18th century, and that was the time when Finland was part of Sweden, I was thinking whether there were any seafarers from the Finnish side of the Swedish kingdom at that time that would have worked in the ships of this company. And I I started to reach and talk with several historians in Finland and also other Nordic countries. And I came to realize that this was a topic that no one had researched before. But everybody that I talked to were very eager (laughs) with this topic and said that, yeah, yeah, you should go on. So I went on and because I had the contacts in Gothenburg, I went and I did some research in the archives in the Gothenburg Provincial Museum. And so that was it, how it started. 
Okay, yeah, that's that's a really interesting story, and I I had no idea about this ship, this replica ship. This sounded really interesting, and so it's actually fully functional. It sounds like it's a fully functional replica that can you know go around the globe. Yes. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I I have to try to see that. That's quite interesting. When I went to, well, I haven't been to Gothenburg, but I've been to Stockholm, and they have this very famous Vasa ship there, which is the actual ship that was very well preserved, and it sank before it even was able to set sail. I can't remember which year precisely, but it's also an old sailing ship, really big, a huge ship. And I hadn't really realized how big these old sailing, ocean-going sailing ships were. So, you know, that just kind of crystallized to me as well that Sweden used to be a really, really major maritime power back in the days. And yeah, really, really interesting, this Gothenburg ship. I have to try to see it myself as well. But, you know, what was the overall role of the Swedish East India Company in Asia and China? Many of us are familiar with the big players like the British and the Dutch East India Companies, or perhaps also the Portuguese and the Spanish. But Sweden doesn't really appear that often in in the narratives about European interaction with Asia during this period. And perhaps Sweden was one of the more minor players. But as I just mentioned, when when I went to Sweden and saw this huge ship, it seemed much bigger than I had ever thought. So Sweden actually was a major player still in some regard. So where does Sweden fit in this overall game of expanding trade and colonialism in the early modern period? What was the role of the Swedish East India Company in this Asia trade? Yes, it's true. The Swedish East India Company, it was much smaller than its European peers in England or Holland and the other great maritime powers. The company in Sweden was established later than the English and the Dutch East India companies. However, by Swedish standards, the East India Company in Sweden, it was the biggest Swedish corporation of its time. So it was significant for the Swedish economy in that sense. Still, it had a smaller number of ships and also fewer journeys to East India. It was more short-lived. It was established later and it went down (laughs) earlier than some of the other East India companies. But then what has been noted is, as you also mentioned, the, the Swedish ships were larger than the others. This was thanks to the new ship technology that was developed here in the north at the time. Ah. And also what has been noted is that the role of the Swedish East India Company ships and their journeys, it was quite important in international merchandise trade during those times, because at the time, For example, English and the French were constantly in war against each other, and their ships were engaged in the battles at the sea. So when it comes to the trade, it was the the Swedish ships that were taking taking care of, of much of the international merchandise at the time. And also what is quite important is that the Swedish East India Company also had its own office in Canton. So Canton was the place where the European ships could enter. And so the Swedish office was there next to the other European East India companies, each of which had their offices just in a row there in the the designated coastal part of the city. Okay. Yeah, really interesting that you mentioned this, that Swedish ships tended to be larger than the others. Well, maybe this explains why I admired the large size of the Swedish ship when I saw that, that actually they were larger than the others. This was new information for me. 
You mentioned there just now Canton and that Sweden had its own office there. And I wanted to ask you about specifically which regions or cities in China or elsewhere in Asia did the Swedish East India Company focus on in its voyages? And well, it seems like Canton was the main port. Canton today better known as Guangzhou in China. But were there other major ports that the Swedish were focused on in China or perhaps elsewhere in the region? No, actually, yeah, it was true. In in China, it was only Canton because China did not allow others to enter any other places. So Canton was the place where trade was carried out. And that was the place where the foreign ships could enter. And so also for the Swedes, this was the main target of the whole journey. The aim was, of course, to buy the luxurious products that were wanted in Europe, which is tea, silk, porcelain, which were bought from China. Of course, before the ships came to Canton, they had to stop at many places, at several locations on the way, because the journey was so long. So at many places where they could have a stopover, they would fill in, you know, water and food for the storages in the ships. So there were typical places where the ships stopped after they had left Gothenburg. Always the first stop was in Cadiz, Spain. Then quite often the Canary Islands or St. Helena Island. Then the next stop was in Cape Town. And then there was the very long sea trip, after which the ships stopped in Mauritius. And then they came to what we know as Southeast Asia nowadays, East and Southeast Asia. In Java, they would typically stop in Batavia, which is nowadays Jakarta, the capital of Indonesia. Many of the Swedish ships also stopped at smaller places close to Java or the islands that we nowadays know as Indonesian islands. Some of those places were very small fishing villages. The ship would stop there and exchange goods for, you know, buying food from from the local people. Then the ships would reach out towards China. They would typically stop in Macau first and then finally in Canton. That, That was the place where the ships had their biggest target of going. Okay. Yeah. You you mentioned there the, some of the products that the trade was focused on, tea and porcelain and these sort of luxury products. I've heard, you know, read from the history, obviously, with the, with the British as well. Tea was a big thing for the British, especially, and just luxury products in general. So I guess for the Swedish East India Company as well, it, it focused on these sort of luxury items. Yes, indeed. It has been said that what the Swedes bought from Canton, it was first like half half of it was tea and then they bought porcelain and silk. But then because tea was in such a high demand in Europe and also it was quite light to carry. It had a high price, but it was light to carry. So towards the end of the life of the Swedish East India Company, it was mostly tea that was then bought from China and carried to Sweden. So yeah, towards the end, it was like 80% of the cargo was actually tea. 
that gave the biggest profits. Okay, well, yeah, that's interesting. I was just going to say that that's probably from a profit perspective that makes the most sense if it's so light. And yeah, I know from history that tea was the big thing. But you've actually written a chapter on this topic in a, in a book on maritime migration published in Finnish by the Migration Institute of Finland. In this chapter, you identified two notable Finnish persons who sailed to China in the 18th century. One of them was Israel Reinius, whom I mentioned in the introduction already. And the other one was a notable businessman called Peter Johan Blood. And well, at least Reinius is an especially valuable source because he kept a quite a detailed journal from his travels from Finland to China. And as I mentioned earlier, he also wrote a dissertation based on his experiences, which was actually the first ever academic dissertation regarding China that was published in Finland. And it was published right here in Turku, in the Royal Academy of Turku, which for those listeners who are not that familiar with academic Nordic history, the Royal Academy of Turku was the precursor of the current University of Helsinki. And so so Renius was quite a notable figure. But what were the experiences of these men like on their travels to China? And do we, for example, from Renius's travel writings, do we learn something special about historical China during the 18th century? Yes, we do quite a lot. If I just mention briefly a background, so Israel Reinius and also his brother, they were at the same ship and they came from Western Finland, Laihia, and they had first come to study seafaring in Stockholm. And after that, they decided to enroll in the Swedish East India Company. And so they started working in the ship Kronprinsen Adolf Friedrich in Gothenburg. And they started already several months before the ship actually started the journey. And because Israel Renius was a cadet, that was his job. So his duty was to keep a logbook of the ship. And we know that the logbook is a detailed diary of the whole journey. And then afterwards, this book, which is written in Old Swedish, obviously, it has been later reprinted. And in 2008, it has been published by the Society of Swedish Literature in Finland. So this this was my main source here. And, and from this logbook diary, Israel Reinius then wrote his dissertation, which is much shorter version of the book. But yeah, going to the logbook and the observations that Rainius made, this was something that he made very detailed notes in the logbook. So he was observing, of course, the weather conditions, because he had to, the winds and so on. But then he also made careful notes on everything, like the vegetation, the habitat that he saw on the way in all the stopover locations. He was observing the nature, flora and fauna, the climate, but then also wherever there were other kinds of life on the islands where the ship stopped, for example. So he also kind of described how the people looked like, what kind of animals there were and so on. But also he wrote about the life on board, how it was on the ship. For example, the kinds of food that were served any special occasions and festivities. Well, there were not too many uh, on those long journeys. Also about the accidents, many kinds of hardships that the journey had. So then when the ship came to 
canton. Because Renius was an officer, he was able to observe what we know as the historical China. Of course, he could only see Canton because it, it was very controlled for the foreigners at the time. So these East India companies and their ships and the officers who came to town, it was very restricted. They could only you know, see a very small part of the town and Canton was very tightly controlled. But still, Renius, because he was able, he made observations on the trade, how it was conducted between the Chinese and the European merchants, the long-lasting negotiations, so he would register prices and, you know, list the products and so on, and this was part of his job. Then, as he was observing the people, he, he wrote in this diary, and here I quote, and I have translated this from the old Swedish to English, but he wrote, the Cantonese are mid-sized people, strong to carry. They are fast-minded, intelligent, and merchant-minded people who are interested even in small profits and who also try to cheat, especially the Europeans. So this was his observation. Further, he perceived the Chinese as lively, happy, mentally stable and controlled, and also as people who do not openly expose their possible setbacks. So these were his observations. Then he was also writing about how he saw the environments, the nature in Canton, its geography. He also wrote something about the religions and the livelihoods of the local people. Okay, that's that's really interesting. It seems that Renius's job description basically meant that he had to keep detailed records. So we are lucky to have this record from Renius's job. It was interesting, his description about the Chinese people. You know, a lot of these old descriptions, at least the image that I have in my head, is that they often might be, especially from modern standards, quite racist, and they might belittle the Chinese or might not have such a positive description of the Chinese and what the Chinese people were like, but it sounds like Renius had a pretty positive appraisal of the Chinese. This is quite interesting to note there, even though he also mentioned something that you hear often in these accounts that the Chinese like to cheat, especially Europeans. That was an interesting point as well. But yeah, really interesting notes from, from Renius. What about this Peter Johan Blood, who was this other major Finnish figure that we know of? Has he left any, any sort of writings from his travels to China? Yeah, in, in some ways, actually, the legacy of Blood, Peter Johan Blood, is m- more manifold because he made several journeys. He had a long career in the Swedish East India Company, whereas Renius only made that one trip he, he wrote his logbook on. So, yes, truly, Blood is the other most well-known, perhaps, person from Finland related to the Swedish East India Company. He started at a young young age and he had a long career. He proceeded in his career to a very high position. So he became a supercargo for the company. The supercargo is the person who is responsible for the purchase and the selling of the merchandise and overseeing the whole cargo. And actually, he also then was made the head of the company's office in Canton 
So he stayed, he lived there for several years. After he finished his career at the company, he actually came back to Finland and he's considered one of the leading economic thinkers in Finland. He was a major businessman and also was trying new farming methods in his inherited farm in Kaskinen, Western Finland. And it has been said because he was capable of many languages. He, so he was capable of reading French, newspapers, English, several languages. So he was very well aware of new economic thinking of that time. So, and of course, because he, he worked for the company later than Renius. So his period of working was towards the very late 18th century and early 19th century. That was the time when the earlier mercantilist economic thinking was being criticized and new waves of thinking came to Europe. So he was following that and it has been said he he's one of the leading economic thinkers in Finland after Judenius. Okay, that's that's a really interesting history of, of this individual as well, I guess, with Renius. So Renius actually only made that one trip there, but because he made such detailed remarks from his trip, we actually learn quite a lot from just that single trip. This actually leads me to the next question about, you know, what was the maritime journey between Finland and China like in general? Specifically, I'm interested in the duration, just how long did it take to sail from Finland to China, I would imagine that's a really long sail. So even if you only make one journey, that's quite a significant period of time. So what was the journey like and how long did it take? Yeah, it was a very long journey. Of course, the ships left from Gothenburg in Sweden and from Gothenburg to Canton and back, it always took at least 18 months. All the ships from Europe actually left at the same time because they had to follow the winds. So they left during the winter months from Sweden or from elsewhere in Europe. Then it may happen at some point on the journey that if the winds were not good, the ships sometimes had to stop on the way. For example, in Mauritius, they might have stopped for several months just to wait for better winds to continue the journey. And of course, then if we think of the Finns who came from the Finnish part of Sweden at that time, then we have to add the travel time from Finland to Gothenburg and back. So it would be several weeks or even months for the total time that the journey would take for them with the very slow transportation of the time. And when it comes to how was the journey like and the, the life on the ship, of course, by our contemporary standards, those ships were small. They were very small compared to the present day ships. There was often a lack of food, a lack of water, even though the ships carried live animals for food, because otherwise the food would just go bad during the, you know, many months. And it happened that sometimes they finished with food. So it was a constantly bad situation, especially for the common deck men. Of course, the officers had very different kind of lifestyle on the ships. And these two groups also, they used two different parts of the ships, actually. So the common deck men were not able to enter those parts where the officers were living in, in the ships. 
the working discipline was very tough. The life on board was very tightly scheduled and, and very limited, especially for the common crew. And the work also was dangerous. So these journeys were really dangerous. There were frequent accidents, quite a high death rate because, you know, Men could fall from the sails or drop to the sea. The death rate was, it's estimated, it was around 10% of the crew. And actually all the time, around one-fourth of the crew was either ill or injured. And the illnesses were mostly because of the tropical illnesses when the ships entered the present Southeast Asia, as we know it. So these illnesses were something that the ship doctor often could do nothing to help the people. Okay, yeah, sounds like quite a rough journey in general. It takes such a long time and obviously all these calamities that you may face. Modern day, we might not really even imagine how it must have been like when nowadays we can just get anywhere in a matter of a few hours by flying a plane. I forgot to ask you earlier when we were talking about Renius and blood, were there other notable Finnish figures on these voyages? And is there perhaps more in the archives that should still be examined regarding Finnish interaction with China specifically. Yes, definitely. There's a lot to learn about the Nordic interaction with China, especially when when it comes to Finns who worked for the Swedish East India Company. So what I realized during this, this research was that there was not that much in Finland, in the Finnish archives, at least I have not found too much, but instead it is the Gothenburg Provincial Archive that has a database, Ost-India, which is quite broad. And that that is what I, I have used for this research. And this is an archive where you can search for the persons who were somehow related to the company. And so I, I did searches by birthplaces, so entering Finnish towns by the living places of the seafarers. So this is how I got and I reached the Finnish persons who would work for the Swedish East India company. And actually, I I would love to continue this research at, at some point to go back to Gothenburg and look for more information. Also, in addition to these two persons, Renius and Blad. And one thing to study further would be to look at the people from Turku, because Turku was actually the biggest place of origin among the Finns who worked for the Swedish East India Company. And this was, of course, natural because of, of Turku's position in the Swedish kingdom and uh, within Finland at the time, and the close connections across the sea to, to Sweden. So this is something that I would like to do in, in the future as well. Okay, yeah, that sounds like there indeed might be more interesting stuff in the archives. And yeah, hopefully you get to do this research and, and carry out this research further in the future. I would be fascinated in, in learning more about this. And I've noticed in my own research with the Dutch National Archives that there's just so much there just waiting to be discovered. Really fascinating topics. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. So really interesting discussion. Thank you very much, Dr. Erja Kettunen Matilainen, for joining us to talk about this fascinating history of Finnish content with China in the 18th century. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you so much indeed. And to our listeners, thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration and studying Asia. You have been 
listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.